Well, good morning. We want to welcome everybody who has gathered with us today and also all those who are watching with us online. If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you're following the headlines, and I know you are, uh, you know that it seems like the world is falling apart. Uh, the headlines seem to be more severe every single day. So what should our attitude be as Christians? People ask me that often. Pastor, what as a Christian should I think about this? Should, should we join the group that's running around saying the sky is falling and the sky is falling? Or should we join that group that just feels that there's no danger and there's no hazard and there's no reason for caution? What should our attitude be? Uh, you've heard all of the extreme things, I'm sure, that I've heard. I've heard people suggest that coronavirus is a plague from the Lord specifically sent uh, to punish a certain group of sinners. And everybody sort of seems to have a different idea of what group that is. But, but that's what some have suggested. Some are saying uh, that this is all just a, a left-wing conspiracy to deny us our liberties. But I've also heard people say that it is a right-wing conspiracy to prevent an election in November. You can listen and hear anything. And I'm convinced that what many people think is more determined by what news broadcasts they watch than it is any real evidence or any real expertise. So what is a Christian to think about this? What should our attitude be? People are looking to us. So many people are filled with fear. Is that the right attitude? So many people are just, they're, they, they're just apathetic about this. They're, they're, there's no concern at all. Is that the attitude that we should have? I think we see a beautiful illustration of the attitude we should embrace as Christians right here in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, I, I think you'll find this fascinating. When Paul wrote this book, the Christians of his day were in an eerily similar situation to our situation today. Now, there wasn't a pandemic, there wasn't a coronavirus or uh, some other infection, but, but, but let me show you how their situation really parallels our situation. So first, many people today are in lockdown or in quarantine, right? And so many of our friends couldn't be here today, many of our church members, because it's not safe for them to leave their homes, they're in lockdown. We have members who are in quarantine. We have members who are, who are positive with the virus and they're, of course, home today. So many people are in lockdown or in quarantine and many of those people are fearing for their lives. Well, the Apostle Paul, when we come to the book of 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul was in lockdown. Do you know that? It was an involuntary lockdown. He was imprisoned for his faith. He was quarantined in Rome, and he too feared for his life. He didn't know if he would survive or not, or if he would be executed. And in fact, eventually, he was executed there in Rome uh, for his faith. There are just some similarities. Today, many people fear being infected by COVID-19. It can happen. It, it almost seems like a, like a random thing. I'll say more about that in a moment. But, but we fear. We fear being infected by this, uh, uh, this novel coronavirus. And we know that if we are, 
for some people, there are no symptoms, right? We all know people who are just completely asymptomatic and, and they're positive, but, but they wouldn't know were not for a test. But for some people, there are some minor symptoms. For some people, there are some major symptoms. Uh, we've had at least one person in our church in the hospital for two weeks uh, because of uh, the effects of the, of the coronavirus. And then for some people, for some people, uh, death comes. Uh, that, that's, that's the fear. Well, what about in Paul's day when Paul was in prison? Now, they didn't have COVID-19, but they had persecution. And this persecution had become so widespread. It was from Rome all the way to Jerusalem. It included Europe and it included the Middle East, all the places they knew about. And there were pockets of it. It was worse in some places than other places. But all the Christians would have feared this persecution that could really break out and affect any of them at any time. And for some people, this this um, empire-wide persecution didn't really affect them at all. But for some people, there were some minor effects. For some other people, the effects were more major. And for some people, they lost their lives. You see the, the interesting parallels? It seems today that those infected with the coronavirus, it almost seems random. Now, certainly there are things we can do that will reduce the risk or, or raise the risk, but You get a whole group of people together and you hear one or two positive for coronavirus and others not. It just, at least from a a lay person's point of view, it seems very random. And and that was the case with the persecution. It would pop up in different places in the empire and affect people different ways. It was hard to predict. Another thing that we're experiencing today is isolation. So many people are isolated from friends and family. Uh, This is generating the most calls uh, to the pastor uh, than anything else. People are just, they're, they're really suffering. Not so much, I mean, we do have people suffering with the virus, but, but we have, it seems like, even more people who are just suffering from the isolation. They've been in their homes for so long. It is so difficult emotionally, uh, spiritually in some sense. They're not in their uh, regular Sunday school classes and can't come to worship. They're, they're struggling. There is an isolation from family and friends today. And then some people have lost their jobs. Uh, We have people right here in our community, many people, lost their jobs because of the virus. Well, you go back to Paul's day, uh, the same thing was happening. Because of the persecution uh, of Christians, uh, what would happen in their in their family units, which were pretty, you know, a large family unit and, and very, very connected with one another. Uh, When somebody would profess Christ in many of these family units, they would be kicked out. They wouldn't be allowed to come back home. They wouldn't be allowed to be a part of the family and the family farm and the family business. And and so there was isolation between family members. And, And then there was great unemployment among Christians. That's one of the reasons why Paul Uh, was so uh, urgent about collecting money when he visited churches for the saints in Jerusalem because so many of the Christians in Jerusalem had lost their jobs because in those days your job was most often connected to your family, the family business, the family job. And so if you accepted Christ, you were separated from that. There are so many parallels between what we're going through today and what what was the reality on the ground in Paul's day and especially when we come to 2 Timothy. So, 
What was Paul's attitude? I mean, he was right in the middle of this. He was quarantined, if, if you will. He was, he was uh, in, in lockdown. He, he could have lost his life. In a sense, he was in ICU. He was counting the days. What was Paul's attitude? Was he screaming the sky is falling? Was he just shrugging it off? Well, I think we see his attitude in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. We'll expand this in a moment or two, but let's just look at this one verse. It is such a good verse when we wonder what our attitude should be. The passage says, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who love his appearing. That was Paul's attitude. He knew he might die. He knew that every time he heard somebody walking down the hallway of the, of the prison he was in, the dungeon that he was in, that, that it could be the executioner. What was his attitude? He had confidence because there is reserved for me, he said, this crown of righteousness. And when I see the Lord, That'll be mine. And not only me, but everybody else who loves his appearing. So we're going to learn this verse this morning. And I want to show you the different parts and how it intersects really with our situation today. But first, I, I really want you to memorize it. And I don't know how long it takes you to memorize the verse, but uh, we're going to stay here until everybody knows it. We're going to go up and down the rows. And uh, you do this in your living room. You, uh, but no, let's do this. I'm going, to, I'm going to ask them to put the verse on the screen. And I want us just to, just to read it together aloud. Can you do that? Will it stick in your mind if you do that? Let's read it together. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who love his appearing. You got it? One more time, and then we'll just spot check you, all right? So make sure you're paying attention. Let's read it aloud. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Now, what does this verse teach us? There are really two parts that you see just even at first glance. It begins to talk about a crown. There is reserved for me a crown but then when you get to the end of the verse, he talks about the appearing of Christ. So I think those are the two themes here. There's a crown and then there is the appearing of Christ. So let's look at those one at a time. What is he talking about when he says the crown of righteousness? Well, let's work through this. In your outline, I've just got three or four or five questions there. And I want to try to answer to help us understand because this is so important, so valuable to us. What is the crown of righteousness? So let's start with crown. Why is it a crown of righteousness? Well, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble today, but, but let, me just, let me just teach you the word of God. The crown here is not a physical object, a piece of jewelry made out of gold with stones inset. This is an illustration. The Bible uses illustrations and parables and types. This is a, a common way to communicate. Jesus did it. Paul does it. Uh, Peter, John, 
all throughout the Old and New Testament, we see these illustrations, and this is one of those. So he's not talking about receiving some physical crown. Now, I know the song that you're thinking about, and I love that song too, but that's not what he's talking about here. Now, some have suggested that maybe this is a crown that we will cast at the feet of Jesus. Have you heard that? I think that's in the song. Good song. Love the song, Andre. We can sing it next week. Get me out of trouble. But, uh, but I, don't, I don't know if that exactly is what the scripture says. People, when they talk about receiving crowns, and you'll hear people say, when I walk around heaven, I'll have the five crowns. And I don't know how you balance all five of those on your head, uh, but, but that's the image that a lot of people have. But I just don't think that's a biblical image. Revelation 4.10 says that there will be 24 elders in heaven, and they will cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus. Uh, so maybe, maybe we'll be a part of that. But there's no indication there that that crown that they're casting is the same as any one of these five different instances of crowns in the epistles. Uh, no connection at all. Uh, no, no certain connection. And then, you know, those 24 elders, those 24 rulers in a sense, uh, exactly represent us and, and demonstrate our activity. There's a lot of uncertainty about that as well. And then on top of that, when you read about the crowns in, in the Apostle Paul's writing or in Peter's writing, so in the epistles of the New Testament, never is the crown some physical object. Here's what the crown is. It stands for the reward. It stands for the prize. It stands for the gift that God is going to give to us. Now, when we, when we understand fully what this means, you're not going to be disappointed that you're not going to have a piece of jewelry in heaven. You're going to be even more excited. This is much better than a piece of jewelry. This is the prize. This is the reward. We'll see specifically what it is in a moment. But this is the reward that God gives to his children who are faithful, who are eager to see him, who persevere uh, to the end. Let me share with you a couple of verses where the New Testament uses the word crown. And I think you could see this uh, illustrated well. 1 Corinthians 9.25 says, Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. So it's talking about an athlete. If he's going to be successful, if she's going to be successful, they have to be self-controlled. They have to be focused. But the verse goes on to say, They do it to receive a perishable crown. So when these athletes run, they're running to receive a crown. Now, it's not a golden crown with, with jewels. They're talking about a wreath that you would put on your head made out of, out of plants and vines. But that's the prize. So these runners run to receive that prize, but of course that will fade. He goes on to say, but we, we run, we, we focus, we move forward to receive an imperishable crown. We receive something that doesn't fade, that doesn't fade. Uh, in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 12, uh, the writer says this, Blessed is the one who endures trials, the one who perseveres to the end, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. That is the crown which is life. What is the gift that God gives to those who persevere to the end, to, to those who, who love Christ and follow Christ? He gives us eternal life. That's the crown. That's the prize. That's, that's the reward. Uh, it's, it's interesting. The word crown in the Greek is uh, Stephanos. And I only mention that because it'll sound familiar to you. I wonder if we have any Stephanies. Raise your hand if your name is Stephanie. We have any Stephanies? There's some behind me maybe. No? 
oh, wow, how can we have a church without a Stephanie? And so, um, but the word Stephanie just means crown, right? Surely we have some Stephens. Uh, that, that, that's, that's, that's the same word. And, and so really, if, uh, you know, if parents uh, knew the etymology of the word, you, you name your child Stephanie or Stephen, you're saying, this is sort of my, my crowning joy. This is my, my crowning achievement. You, you, you don't mean that the, that the child is a, is, is a large gold ring. You, you mean that, that this is the prize. This is the gold. This is, this is what shines and so he's talking about a crown here. Now, what kind of crown is it? Let's, let's look at the second question. Not only why is it a crown, but why is it righteousness? You notice it says a crown of righteousness. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that there's like a label on the front of it and it says righteousness. You know, capital letters, you put it on your head, people can see, well, he's got the crown of righteousness. He's got the crown of life. He's got the crown of, you know, whatever label is on his. It's not talking about a label on a piece of jewelry. What he says is we will be crowned. This is, listen to this. This is the best news you could ever hear. We will be crowned with righteousness. Righteousness is the crown. That's the goal. That's what everybody wants. That's what we desire. Righteousness. And so Paul says, I have confidence here. It's been reserved for me that I will be crowned with righteousness. Now, what, what exactly is righteousness? Well, to, to put it as simply as we can, righteousness means to have a right standing with God. I'm, I'm guilty of sin. So are you. And my sin has separated me from God. I stand under the condemnation of God. God is the righteous, perfect judge. And I have sinned against him and I have broken the law. And so I am condemned by him. I am guilty. And the Bible says that my guilt will lead to death. That's my relationship with God. I do not have, apart from Christ, I do not have a right relationship with God. So what is righteousness? Righteousness is a right relationship with God. If I have righteousness, that means the relationship has been changed. It has been fixed. It has been repaired. It has been renewed. I have a right relationship with God. What does it mean when he says that, that, that I will receive the crown of righteousness? It means that I will receive the ultimate prize, the greatest award. I will be made right with God. Isn't that what we want? I will be forgiven. I will be in perfect fellowship with God. I will know his love and his peace and his joy. I will, I will have a right relationship with God, the crown of, of righteousness, of righteousness. Now, where does it come from? Because he tells us that right here in the verse, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will, will give to me. Who gives us this crown? It's important. He says here, Jesus gives us the crown. Now, why does Jesus give us righteousness? Why does it come from Jesus? Well, because Jesus is the dispenser of righteousness. Jesus is the facilitator. He is the provider of righteousness. So I'm separated from God because of my sin. You know this, this is the gospel, the simple gospel. I'm separated, you're separated from God because of sin. Jesus though comes and lives a perfect, sinless life. Jesus was right with the Father. He deserved to be right with the Father. He merited righteousness. But he came and he died. He took my place on the cross so that I could be restored, so I could be right with God. The righteousness that I have, listen, it's Jesus' righteousness. It's not mine. I didn't earn it. I haven't merited it. I don't deserve it. 
It's Jesus' righteousness. So it, it's important when Paul says, that I, I, have, I, I have this confidence that it has been reserved for me, this prize, this award of righteousness, and it has come from the Lord Jesus. It's his righteousness. You know, if you were to die today, you've heard this question before. If you were to die today and stand before God, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? I mean, think about it. What would you say? Why should I, why should you get to go to heaven? Well, you know what most people will say, and most people will say, well, I, you know, I tried my best. I was a good husband, good wife, I, a good parent. I, I was honest. I worked hard. I, they'll, they'll begin to talk about their own righteousness. Here's what I did. Here's who I am. But the, but the whole story about you is what? You also sinned. You are also a sinner. If it's based on your righteousness, listen, nobody's going to heaven. So what's the answer to the question? Why should I let you into my heaven? Because I have the righteousness from Christ. I don't deserve to go, Father. I, 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 have not, I, I have not lived a life that has earned or merited righteousness, but Jesus has given me his righteousness. And I trust what Jesus has done. So the righteousness, the crown of righteousness, the prize, the award of righteousness, where does it come from? It comes from Jesus. And, and then one more question so you understand completely the crown of righteousness is, when will we get it? When will we receive it? Now see, that's interesting here because he he seems to say, he does say that this is something that will happen in the future. Uh, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me. Has he given it to me yet? But he will give it to me on that day, the day I see him face to face. So have I been made righteous already? Or am I still under the condemnation of the Father and I'll receive righteousness at some later time? Which is it? There's a lot of confusion about this. When the Bible talks about salvation, and this could be a whole other sermon, but just quickly, when the Bible talks about salvation, salvation is the whole process. Think of salvation as an umbrella with a lot of things underneath it, but salvation describes the whole process of being made right with God, becoming a child of God, adopted into his family, a lot of words you could use. So when the Bible talks about salvation, it's interesting that sometimes it talks about it as an event in the past. The Apostle Paul will say, I was saved. There was an event. There was a time when I put my trust in Christ, when I professed Christ. I was saved as if it has already happened and it's done. And so in a sense, I, I received the righteousness of Christ Oh, 32 years ago, when I, when I put my, my, my trust in Christ, when I was saved, I was saved. But there is another sense in the Bible uh, where it talks about salvation as something that's very present. Paul will say, I am being saved, like, like it's happening now. I mean, a little bit. Some of it happened yesterday. Some of it will happen today. So what does that mean? Well, while I was saved in the past, I am also being saved in the sense that God is continuing to, to, to change me, form me into the character of Christ. That's a process. I wasn't instantly perfect when I came to know Christ. I'm not perfect today, 
But boy, I've come a long ways in the last 32 years. Not as far as I should have, perhaps, but I've come a long ways. I am being saved. And then Paul here talks about one day I will receive the crown of righteousness. I will be saved as, an, as a future event. Now, there are theological words for that. If you're just curious, we call, I have been saved. I was saved. We call that justification. The process of being saved, we call that sanctification. And when I will, I will receive the crown of righteousness, fully receive that, that's, that's what we call glorification. But, but here's the more important thing, not the, not the $2 words. We can have assurance if we've put our trust in Christ that God has saved us. It is a settled fact. And we can look forward to, to all the rest that God will do. We can know that if we've put our trust in Christ that God continues to work on us every day. I am being saved. God is not finished with me. And we can look forward, as Paul says right here, to the day that we will be fully and completely saved, that we will be glorified and made, in a sense, into the character of Christ. So when we'll receive this, in some sense, we will receive it as soon as we see Christ uh, face to face. Now, that's the crown. But who does he say will get the crown, the award? When you see crown, think of award. Who will receive this righteousness? Well, he tells us here at the end of the verse, he says um, that God will give it to me and not only to me, but to all the people, to everyone who has loved his appearing. The Bible makes it very clear that Jesus is coming back. We're all going to see Jesus again. And maybe we'll see Jesus when our life here expires, when we die. Or maybe we'll see Jesus because he'll come back for us this afternoon. Would you be okay with that? But we will all see Jesus again. That is a settled fact in the Bible. So he says here that those people who will be awarded with righteousness are those people who long for, who look forward to, who love the coming of Christ, the appearing of Christ, whether it's in the clouds or if it's, uh, or if it's because our life here is ended, we love the appearing, uh, the appearing of Christ. So what, what exactly does, does, that, does that mean? How, how can we love the appearing of Christ? I remember several years ago, I don't, I don't know how many, Donna, Donna could probably tell me, but I was, uh, I was on a mission trip in, in Africa. And I want to tell you a story, and I, I'm not presenting this as the most amazing story. And uh, those of you who have gone off to war or something like that, you certainly have, a, you know, have a story that would trump mine. Uh, but let me tell you my story anyway. I had gone to Africa for a mission trip. It was just a couple of weeks, uh, maybe two and a half weeks. It wasn't a long, long trip. Uh, it was the first time I'd been in Africa, and first time I'd been really separated from my wife and my girls for. For that, that period of time, the communication wasn't good. We were sort of in the, in the jungle and there weren't a lot of opportunities to, to get information from home or to, or, or to give information to home. And I really miss my wife. I know some of you have been through much worse things, uh, but I really missed my wife and one of my two girls. I just couldn't wait to get back. And so uh, <laughs> I, I miss both of them. Um, so we, um, we flew this tiny little airplane, uh, from the, from the jungle to, uh, to Nairobi, Kenya. And we sat in this airport 
in just like a metal folding chair with nothing to do because they'd taken all of our bags for six or seven hours. And I liked the people that were with me, but you know, after two and a half weeks in the jungle, you're pretty much tired of everybody. So we just sat there and looked at each other six or seven hours. Then we get on an airplane and uh, we fly, I don't know, a few more hours and we end up in London. Well, our, there was something wrong, I don't remember now. Our, our plane didn't fly. And so we ended up at the airport in London for about 12 hours, half a day. We just sat there, twiddled our thumbs, we sat there. Well, then finally we got a, got a flight to Chicago. And uh, we got to Chicago, of course we're late, so our flight, we've missed our, our connecting flight. And so we get there and we look at the board and we talk to one of the agents and there is a flight that's gonna leave like in 20 minutes. And if we go fast, we can get there. But there are only like 10 seats on it and there were 12 of us. And so we all run to the gate and I, I'd like to tell you that we were all, you know, putting the other person first. No, you go, no, you go, I don't, no, you go. But we weren't, <laughs> we were just running. We get to the gate and it turns out it wasn't first come first serve or I wouldn't have run so hard. Uh, we were standing there and they had all of our names and so they were calling out who they had selected for the 10 seats. I wanted to go home so badly. If, if we weren't on that flight, it was another six hours or so, right there in the airport. This would have made it like a 48 hour trip. And I, and I know, I mean, these are first world problems. I wasn't, nobody was shooting at me. I mean, I wasn't gonna die, but still, I really wanted to go home. So I didn't get selected. They selected others. I was stuck there with somebody, two or three people maybe, and we were stuck in the airport for another, uh, well, half of a daytime day. Ugh. It was so hard. I know, not, not you know, in a, in a first world sense. Now, why? I mean, you've been through something like that. Why was it so hard? Because I longed to see my family. I just had, I wanted to see my wife and my girls so badly. That's what Paul is talking about here. When he talks about his longing, his desire for the appearing of Christ, whether I get there through having my head chopped off here in Rome or because the Lord comes back today, I can't wait to get home. Now, how can we have that same kind of attitude? How can we have that, I've got to get home from Chicago, I need to be on that airplane kind of, uh, kind of desire for heaven? Because he says here, crown of righteousness for all those who love his appearing. Well, just one, two, three. Let me tell you from this verse how we can, how we can love his appearing. Number one, we need to embrace the certainty. So if you, if you look back, hopefully you have your Bibles open, verse eight, again, there is reserved for me. That's how he begins. There is reserved for me. Paul was confident that, that the crown of righteousness awaited him. He had this confidence. He had this assurance. He wasn't wondering. He wasn't fearful. There wasn't a question mark. He had confidence. You ever gone to a restaurant and there's a long line outside and people didn't know if they were going to get a table, but you had a reservation and you walked up confidently. You walked by all those people. You, you could feel their stares and you said, I've got a reservation and you get a seat. What Paul said is there may be people around me who are fearful about the coming of the Lord. There may be people who are fearful about dying, but not me. I am ready. I am confident. 
I have a reservation for a crown of righteousness. He, he had that certainty. I, I've been reading uh, about the lives of the Puritans a lot lately, just in my personal study, the Puritans and the early evangelicals. Uh, Andre, I've been reading about a lot of these hymn writers as well as the preachers. And, and you know, one of the things that, that seems to be a common thread amongst these people is they, they really struggled with assurance. Some of these people, and it, and it seems like, maybe I'm just reading more of those, but it seems like a lot of the hymn writers, they, they spent their entire lives so scared that, that they were not genuine Christians, and they feared death. And when I've, when I've read through their stories, and of course they knew the Bible much better than I know the Bible, but I couldn't help but think that just doesn't square with the Apostle Paul. He didn't, he didn't wonder, he didn't fear. He says, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness. We need to embrace that certainty. When I talk to somebody who says, I am afraid to die, when I talk to someone about the return of the Lord and, and people are saying, oh no, I hope that doesn't happen, almost every time, here's the reason. We just don't have the certainty that we're right with God. Well, if you don't have the certainty, you need to pray and read and talk to somebody. You need to come see your pastor. You need to come see Mark or, or one of our other ministers. You need to find the certainty. No way, there is no way you will love his appearing if there's some uncertainty about whether or not that'll be a good day. Paul knew. He embraced the certainty. The second thing is we need to run the race. I think it's interesting that Paul uses the word crown here. He could have used a different word. He could have uh, said, you'll, you'll receive the gift of righteousness. That would have fit uh, well. But why did he use the word crown? Well, the Apostle Paul often used the word crown. And in every case, he's talking about an athletic endeavor, a contest. And, and he's talking about how we work, we strive to, to win the contest. And he compares that with the Christian life. Now, I'm going to read to you three or four verses just quickly uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that demonstrate that. And, and then I'll say something about them. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 says, Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. So he says, you as a Christian, you need to be like a sprinter. You need to give it your all. You need to run so that you'll win the prize. The next verse, now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. He says the race is worth it because of, because of the prize. Verse 26, he says, so I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Look at the next verse, instead. I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now notice this. Paul says right here at the beginning of 2 Timothy 4.8 that he has this confidence that he will receive the crown of righteousness. But he says over in 1 Corinthians 9 that I'm running the Christian race so that I'm not disqualified in the end. It seems like those two verses don't fit together. Does that make sense? It seems like in one sense, Paul is saying it is a settled fact because of what Jesus has done. But in the other sense, no, I've got to earn this. I've got to run hard and run straight. So which is it? Well, that's, 
That's a very important question. And people get confused about this. It is, to use the technical language, that one of these is determinative and the other is indicative. Now, now, let me explain that. One of these things determines your fate. One of these things indicates your fate. So if you were to go to the thermostat, I don't know if we have a thermostat in here. I think it's computer controlled. But, if, but there's probably one in your house. You go to your thermostat. The thermostat in your house is determinative, right? You change the thermostat and the temperature in your house will change up or down. It determines the temperature in your house. But if you have a thermometer, the thermometer doesn't determine the temperature, it indicates the temperature. It tells you what the temperature is. You can't do anything with that thermometer to change the temperature. All it does is indicate the temperature. Well, what we see here from Paul is that the, ter- the determinative factor is Jesus. It, it's, it's, the, it's the righteousness of Christ. The, it's the righteousness that, that Christ gives to us that makes a difference. You are not saved because you've lived a straight enough life, because you've tried hard enough. No, it is Christ. It is all Christ. It is, it is only from Christ that we can be forgiven. That's the determinative part. But the indicative part If you are a child of God, your life will indicate that. One of the signs that you're a child of God is that you're running the race, that you're that you're trying to stay in the lines, that you're that you're pushing hard, that you're that you're that you're fighting on. That indicates it doesn't determine, it doesn't earn your salvation, but it indicates, it indicates your your salvation. And so what we what we see here is. Is simply that we, we need to trust the Lord. That's the first point, embrace the certainty. But then we, we need to live like it matters. I'm not telling you, you get tripped up this week, you lose your salvation. Absolutely not. But a person who is, who is uh, saved by the blood of Christ, who has put their trust in the provision of God, will, will be a person who strives, who strives to live for the Lord. In fact, it is the struggle in the race that makes us desire heaven. Let me tell you what I mean by this. This, this, is, this is important and, and it's something I, I think I'm, I wouldn't have known or understood five years ago, 10 years ago, but I'm learning it more every day. When do I most desire heaven? When I'm in my devotional time in the morning, and, and that's not the only time it happens, but when I'm in my devotion time and I confess my sins from the previous day, you do that every day, and I talk to God about how I sinned the previous day, and I'll say, Lord, oh, I, I had the wrong attitude yesterday. I, I had a wrong attitude about something or towards somebody, and maybe I wasn't kind enough or I wasn't patient enough, and I... And I'll confess that. I'll say, oh, God, it, that was wrong thing. That was sin. And, I'm, and, and I regret that. I'm sorry. And I'm sorry, Lord, that I've had to confess this to you over and over and over. Father, I'm so tired of my sin. I know you've covered it and you've forgiven it. But I don't want to just be rescued from the, from the penalty of sin. I want to be rescued from the presence of sin. And it's at those times when you're confessing your sins, when you're striving to run the race, that your desire to see Jesus just skyrockets. 
We need to run the race. And then number three, quickly, I'm out of time. We need to rehearse the moment. And this will sound a little morbid, but I, I think this is what scripture is teaching us. We need to rehearse the moment that we'll see Jesus face to face. I think that's what Paul did. And, and I'm going to show you some more verses to indicate that in a moment. But think about a rehearsal. Uh, those of you in the choir, you've been to a great number of rehearsals. If, uh, if you've ever been in, a, in an orchestra or band or maybe you're, you're in a play in high school or college, you went to rehearsals. Now, what's the purpose of a rehearsal? Why do you rehearse? It shows you the weaknesses of your performance, right? You get in the rehearsal and you find out that didn't sound right. That's off. Somebody's playing a wrong note. The tempo's bad. So when you rehearse, in order for you to be able to see where the performance needs work. Does that make sense? You see in a, in a rehearsal where your preparations have been faulty and you have time in the rehearsal to fix them, right? That's why you don't just stand up and, and do it unrehearsed because you may find out while you're doing it for everybody that, hey, this stinks. <laughs> well, it's too late now, right? But in the rehearsal, there was time to do something about it. Now, again, I, I hate to be morbid this morning, but every one of us needs to rehearse. We need to think through what it'll be like to stand before God in heaven. Have you thought about that? What would it be like if you were to die today and you were to stand before God? And when you go through that little rehearsal, if there are deficiencies, you'll know them, right? If, if there's something to confess, you'll know it. It's that rehearsal. Now, let me show you. I think that's what Paul is doing right here in this passage we're reading. Let's go back up to verse 6. Paul says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is close. So Paul says, I'm about to die. He knows he's at the end, he's about to die. And then he says in the next verse, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He says, I think about standing before God and I know I have, I have done what I should do. Doesn't mean that Paul never did anything wrong. Paul was a terrible sinner, a terrible sinner. He, he had Christians executed because of their faith. But he says, I've come clean before the Lord and I've been obedient and there's nothing. He says, I'll be able to stand before God and say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And then he, of course, the verse that we're focused on this morning, there is reserved for me a crown of righteousness. He rehearsed and he was confident. I think we ought to all rehearse. Rehearsals are, are good. And this kind of rehearsal uh, is is best. So what kind of attitude should we have about the headlines in the news, the coronavirus? Should we be fearful? Should we be dis dismissive? No, I think what people ought to see in us, I don't know the medical stuff. I don't know if it's going to get better or worse. I, I, don't, I don't know. And nobody else seems to know. But here's what I know. There is reserve for me the crown of righteousness. And not just for me, but for everybody who loves his appearing. That should be our attitude. And that's what people ought to see when they look to us as, as believers, as Christians. Now, I'm way over on my time, but just, just one more thing. It is amazing how this virus has, has spread. And, and I'm going to get some of the medical details here wrong. But, you know, this is an illustration, you understand. But so, some, 
some butcher over in, what was the city in Wuhan, Wuhan, China, which I, may, I bet none of us had even heard of a year ago, right? So some, somebody in a meat market in some little own city of China uh, gets sick and he sneezes on somebody. And that person sneezes on somebody else. And that person sneezes on somebody else. And four months later, six months later, 500 people in Nacogdoches have been sneezed on, right? I mean, isn't that amazing that this tiny little virus could spread that fast and that far? What if our attitude and our confidence in Christ were as contagious and as famous as the coronavirus? What if, what if we sneezed on a few people? Now, I know this is on television, but you know what I mean. What if, what if we showed people our confidence in Christ? I know that is, there is reserved for me in heaven crown of righteousness. And not just for me, but, but for you too, if you, if you love his appearing. Let's let that be the legacy that we spread. Just so your head bowed and eyes closed. Father in heaven, this is not always as true of me as it should be, but I'm anxious to see, to see you face to face. Lord, come quickly today. Lord, if this is my last day, I'm ready. Increase our love, our desire to see you. And when people are fretting about a virus or a lost job or an isolation, those are real issues. We don't want to be dismissive. But let them see in us a confidence in you that turns them to you. May you become in our lives and our community as famous as the coronavirus. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.